Well, I'd like to invite you this morning uh, to take out your sermon outline found in the bulletin which you received when you came in. As you notice, we will be continuing in our study of the book of Proverbs. We are spending seven weeks this summer in the book of Proverbs. And as we've already kind of established in previous weeks, uh, you can't really take a passage from Proverbs and preach through it as is our typical custom. What you need to do is just find a theme in the book of Proverbs and pull from various other sections in the book of Proverbs. So that's why uh, you will be well served this morning to have that outline out. That will help you to follow along. If you're visiting with us this morning, I just want to let you know this is typically not how uh, we preach here. We typically take a passage of Scripture and explain that passage and apply it to our lives. We let the, the Bible as it's written dictate how we understand Scripture on Sunday mornings. But when you come uh, to a book like Proverbs, you just can't do that. And so we, we take a theme and then we try to find the biblical truth to support our understanding of that theme. And I, as I've already admitted to you, I think in previous weeks, uh, this topical preaching is certainly outside of my expertise. I have a very little, uh, little idea how to do this, and that will be uh, evident to you shortly. Um, so, but we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, and and why, why, why I'm just chatting with you for a moment, I, I do, um, uh, you know, Pastor Josh and, and Lauren and, and all the rest have, have worked so hard to get ready for this VBS. I, most of you are aware we, we already have 140 children signed up to be here uh, tomorrow. And, um, and that's an extraordinary number. I think it's larger than any number we've had in, in recent years. So that, you think, okay, well, that's interesting, but, you know, I'm not serving in VBS. And if that's your mentality, I, I just want to challenge it a little bit, especially for those of you who are members of Hamilton Baptist Church. This is, this is our church's ministry, and what you must do, and I'm asking you to do as your pastor, is that you be in prayer, intentional, deliberate prayer this week, for this major outreach event from this church. We want simply not to minister to our own children. We want to spread the fame of King Jesus in Western Loudoun to our neighbors. We want to love them into a loving relationship with Christ. And this is one way in which we engage children and hopefully their families. And so we need you to pray. So church, will you, will you pray for VBS this week? Or, or it was two of you. Let's try that again. Uh, church, will, will you pray for VBS this week? Thank you. Hear now the Word of God. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful even now for this time to consider your truth as we find in the book of Proverbs. In particular, how it applies to this emotion, which I believe you have given us, the emotion of anger. And yet, like many of our emotions, uh, it's gone off the rails a bit. We do not use what you have given us in a way that exalts you and loves people. So we, we come here, I hope, with humble hearts this morning and ask that you would very practically and very tangibly change us. This, this topic, I think, is a very relevant, easy to understand, applicable topic to our lives. And we want to consider it this morning because we want to be more like Jesus. We simply don't want to be nicer people. We don't want to be more moral, good people. We want to be Christ-like people. That Christ may be honored. That we may image forth the God from whose image we are created, that others might know you. And so be pleased to glorify yourself in this church 
by working in our lives today through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Recently read a story of a man flying a small single engine airplane towards a country airport. Really, not even an airport, just an airstrip. And he was running behind schedule. He arrived at that airstrip just before sunset, and by the time he lined up his plane with that airstrip, this lightless airstrip, mind you, with no lights on his plane, dusk had begun to set in. He came down for the landing, but the shadows were too deep and darkness was was too deep that, that he became a little bit unsure of the landing. And so he decided at the last moment to, to pull the plane back up and circle around for another attempt. But by the time he had lined the plane up again for the runway, the darkness had grown. He could no longer see the trees. He could no longer make out the ground. It was too late. He could not land his plane. And so for the next two hours, he could do only one thing, and that is fly around in a circle. And this little plane swallowed up in the darkness of the uh, countryside. And there he circled, not even sure if he was above the airport anymore, as his fuel was running low. Soon his plane would literally fall out of the sky. While this all was happening, there was a neighbor... He kept hearing this plane drone by and by over and over again. And he grew somewhat annoyed with this man who keep buzzing his house. Why does he keep flying over my home? And then it finally dawned on him the predicament in which this pilot was in. He jumped in his car, drove as fast as he could to that airstrip, and raced backwards and forwards down that airstrip, trying to show the pilot where the runway was. When he saw the planes um, begin to line up, he went to the end of that airstrip and put on his high beams to cast enough light upon that airstrip so the pilot could safely land. I tell that story because it seems to me that that this neighbor's kindness is, is much like the book of Proverbs. I suggest to you that you and I live in a world filled with darkness and confusion. And if the world is not dark enough, my friends, all we have to do is look at our own hearts. There is darkness there. There is confusion there. And Proverbs is, is, is like this car racing to the rescue with its lights on, shining brilliantly, showing us how to live wisely and safely. Solomon, of course, as we know, who wrote this book, prayed to God to, uh, for the ability to discern between right and wrong, especially when the law of God does not apply. We call that wisdom. Wisdom, as we have defined it, is simply the righteous competence in life. Wisdom is just knowing how life works, understanding how it works, and being able to navigate life in a competent and righteous way. The book of Proverbs is incredibly helpful in, in living wisely. In fact, when you read it, I don't know, I've ch- challenged you, I know Pastor Josh has challenged you to read it through this summer. Perhaps some of you have done that. If you have, you might be like m- myself, somewhat uh, startled by the contrast between the, the wisdom given to us by the Bible and the wisdom presented to us by our culture. It seems to be a very strong contrast to me. It seems to be what our culture tells us is that real life, the real life is, is found in being young and thin and tan and wealthy, having a big home with all the fancy gadgets. I don't know if you're getting that message. I was, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, ordered a couple pizzas at Harris Teeter, and I was, I was waiting for them to, to bake the pizzas, and, and the magazine rack is, is right by the, the pizza stand, and so I, I thought I would go over to the magazine rack to glean some wisdom. Right? <laughs> I discovered that life is about low-carb food, rock-hard abs, and a shiny car. Life is about having the right watch, the right food, the right cigar, Even the right pet, you will discover from the magazine entitled Bark that your dog can be your co-pilot. Many magazines, of course, 
uh, deal with our greatest human possession, that is, that is our home. I, while the pizza was baking, figured out how to create the home of my dreams. I also surveyed breathtaking designs. And if you're not in the magazine rack, all you have to do is turn on the television, don't you? It seems like every other show is either about losing weight or fixing your home or cooking food. All this, of course, requires money. There are plenty of magazines that tell you how to get it. I learned the, second, the seven secrets of successful retirement. And in case you have no money upon which to retire, you can look at the money of other people in the magazine called Billionaire, satisfying your voyeurism, I suppose. Right? This is the wisdom that our world offers us. Of course, I'm glad we Christians know better. That we have it all figured out. Well, perhaps not. You can go to your local Christian bookstore, and in the Christian bestsellers, you will find books entitled Jesus Life Coach, Think and Grow Rich, Power to Prevail, The Maker's Diet, Even Body by God. Right? That's how life works. Right? Thin, tan, rich. Successful. This is our cultural ideal. This is the wisdom of our age. My question for you is if you are pursuing that wisdom or know someone who is, have they actually achieved what they thought they were offered? Has it actually provided for them a a wonderful and successful and joy-filled life? Is actually giving what it offers? I would suggest you the Bible presents a starkly stark contrast to what the world suggests is wisdom. It begins by saying wisdom starts with fearing the Lord. Proverbs 9 and verse 10, as we considered a a number of weeks ago, the the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And and the fear of the Lord, of course, is not being afraid of God. It it, is almost the opposite. You're not afraid God's going to hurt you. You're afraid you're going to hurt Him. You're afraid you're going to displease God. He's captured your heart. He's won your affections. You are so in awe and in love with God that you don't want to do anything that might displease Him. You want to bring Him joy and delight with all that you say and do. This is God said in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He said, now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You notice that that God says, this is what I require of you. I want you to fear me and I want you to love me. He doesn't say fear me or love me. He says fear me and love me. I would suggest to you that the more you love God, the more you will fear God. That you will fear bringing him dishonor and displeasure. This is where the book of Proverbs begins with the fear of the Lord. And then it begins to address particular issues one after another, right? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh took the very easy topic of lust and sexual attraction. And last week we considered um, how, how, how the Proverbs teaches us about the use of our mouth, our words. Today, as you already know, we want to consider anger. The book of Proverbs has much to teach us on anger. I would suggest to you that we find six truths about anger from the book of Proverbs. Consider with me, first of all, the danger of anger or dangerous anger. The Bible repeatedly warns us of the dangers of anger. Anger seems to be like a bomb within us. It's it's like dynamite to the soul, a, a bomb to our relationships. Anger will keep us from loving people. Anger will rob us of joy. Anger will even destroy us. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 22, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable, you know what, to judgment. And so the Bible is full of the warnings of the dangers of anger. I identify three of those dangers from the book of Proverbs. First of all, that anger will make you a fool. Anger makes us a fool. Proverbs 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. He who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Now, let me ask you, when you're angry, do you make wise decisions? Do you ever say, yeah, you know, when I'm really boiling, that's when I'm thinking the clearest. That's exactly when I know what to do. No, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? We all would recognize that. 
When we're angry, we usually do something or say something stupid. We say something foolish. Right? And then we calm down and we think about what we said and we think about what we did and, and we feel like what? A fool. Do you know why you feel like a fool? Because you are a fool. Right? I mean, that's what it says. He who has a hasty temper exalts folly. It'll make you a fool. It will even trap you in foolishness. Proverbs 19, verse 19. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty for if you deliver him, you will have only to do it again and again and again. You see, anger creates a pattern of foolishness. And, and, and again, this, seems to be, this all seems to be self-evident. I mean, how many times have you gotten angry and then you've gone back and you said, you know, I'm sorry that I got angry. And then what happens the next hour, the next week? Right here it comes again. Anger, once again. It's hard to repent of. There's a trap of anger, though, the Bible teaches. I think part of the problem with repenting of anger is we often don't admit that we are angry. Someone asks you, are you angry? And we'll say something like, of course not! Right? Right? We'll say things like, you know, I'm just passionate. I'm just telling it like it is. I need to get it off my chest. I'm frustrated. I'm impatient. I'm telling the truth, but I'm not angry. I would tell you that is foolishness. As the Bible tells us, it will make you a fool. Anger, secondly, the second danger of anger, it will destroy relationships. Once again, self-evident. Proverbs 29, verse 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger commits many sins. You see, a man of wrath, there's strife all around him. And and, and you, you've experienced this, I trust. You've experienced personal pain due to the uncontrolled anger of others. And I would even suggest that you have, by chance, in, in, inflicted personal pain on others because of your anger. Anger wounds people. Anger destroys relationships. Anger, of course, is just a precursor to a, a verbal abuse. It's a precursor to physical violence. You live with an angry parent. You live with an angry spouse, and that, that will cover the entire home, won't it? Right? You, you just hope someone's not angry today. You live in a home full of uncertainty and unease. The home's supposed to be a place of refuge and retreat, and yet your home becomes a battleground. You're not quite sure what it's going to be like. It destroys relationships, and anger will destroy your body. Thirdly. Proverbs 14, verse 30, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but passion makes the bones rot. I've come across a recent study that says anger is worse for you physically than any other emotion you experience. It's worse for you than sadness. It's worse for you than anxiety. It's worse for you than fear. There is an increased likelihood of heart disease. Within two hours of an outburst of anger, your chances of a heart attack or a stroke are significantly higher, just as the Bible tells us it is. But passion makes the bones rot. It's dangerous. And now you might be thinking, okay, well, that sounds terrible. I'm glad I don't have this problem. I'm glad I don't get angry. Well, I would suggest to you that, that anger is not just found in, in kicking the cat or punching the wall or yelling, right? Some people conceal anger under a calm exterior and on the inside they're boiling in their gut. Other people have learned that through tears you can hurt people back through criticism or excessive correction. Some people even turn the anger on themselves and become bitter and depressed, right? Anger materializes in many ways. You could, you could grit your teeth, right, and, and yell. Right? You could turn red in the face or become withdrawn and silent. You can gossip, complain, hold a grudge, get even, grow cynical and hostile. And it is all anger. Right? It's all anger. It doesn't look the same with everyone. In fact, when I get angry, my, my volume decreases. And the pace of my talk slows down. Right? Some people get loud and fast. I get quiet and slow. Which is why I preach so quickly. Right? Because I'm happy here. Right? Okay? But, right? So it's, it's different. Right? And, and it comes in different forms. And in fact, if you say, well, you know, 
I'm glad other people are here. They'll listen to this sermon. I don't have to listen so much because I don't have anger. I don't get angry. Well, I would suggest to you then you have a totally different problem. I would suggest to you that the Bible teaches us that to not get angry at certain times is a sin. I would suggest to you that you at times must get angry. That the Bible demands that you and I have a righteous anger. So consider, secondly with me, a righteous anger. Now think about, what, what is anger? Well, I, would, I think anger is just an emotional reaction to something you don't like, right? Something wrong. Maybe something evil. This is why we feel anger. There's a lot we don't like in this world. There's a lot wrong with this world. It makes us angry. Anger is simply a judging emotion given to us by God when something is wrong. And you get upset about it. This is why the Bible in Ephesians 4 and verse 26, as Butch read for us, says, Be angry and do not sin. Right? You, you would do well just to, to store that away in your heart. Those six words. Be angry and do not, it's, do not sin. It's the title of the sermon. Be angry. There's an imperative command. Be angry. And while you're at it, make sure you're not sinning. In that anger. Be angry and do not sin. Just like God. You do realize, of course, that God gets angry. Numbers 32. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. Habakkuk 3. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. Romans 2, verse 5, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. You see, God gets angry. Now, this is where people want to object. Wait a second. Uh, your God may get angry, people might say, but my God doesn't get angry. My God is a God of love. My God uh, is, is not a God of anger. This is very popular today. One reportedly Christian author has, has written, quote, The Bible never defines God as anger, power, or judgment. In fact, it never defines Him as anything other than love. Now, I would certainly agree with that part. Well, so part of that. God is a God of love. Amen? Right? For Sean, God is love. And I would say because God is a God of love, He therefore must get angry. And that is actually his love, which gives rise to his anger. And I think you understand this. If you love something, and then something comes to harm that which you love, what emotion do you feel about that? Anger. For instance, if you love children, what do you feel about child abuse? Anger. If you love freedom, what do you feel about sex trafficking? Anger. If someone is harming your spouse, if someone is verbally abusing your children, what emotion is appropriate at that time? Anger. Right? You, you get, in other words, you get angry not because you have no love. It's the exact opposite. You're angry precisely because you love. And that the love summons the anger from within your heart to come to the rescue of that which you love. Anger is intended by God to be a protecting emotion. And if you're not angry, I would suggest to you your love is pretty weak. In fact, anger is not the opposite of love. You know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. You just don't care. Go ahead and yell at my children. Call them all sorts of names. I don't care. That's hatred. You get, you get angry because you love. And so God is a God of love. Of course He is. Therefore, God must get angry. He gets angry and does not sin. I like how the church father, uh, Chrysostom, put it. He's called Golden Tongue back, I think, in the fourth century. He said, He that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause also sins. You catch that? He's that not, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause also sins. Just like Jesus. Jesus in Mark chapter 3, he, he, he comes to the, the Sabbath, uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man there in the synagogue, and he, he has a withered hand. He's had a withered hand for years and years. And Jesus thinks, well, I could take care of this. I'm going to heal this guy. He calls him forward. And, and the Bible tells us that, that all the religious leaders were upset with Jesus. Not because he was going to heal the man, but he's healing the man on the wrong day. 
right? Don't heal on God's day. How dare you, right? Do, do it on, on Sunday. Do it on, on Tuesday. Just whatever you do, don't heal somebody on the Sabbath. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5 that he looked at them with anger. Why is Jesus angry? Well, because he loves this man. He doesn't want to see this man hurting. And and other people want to keep him hurting. And so he is angry because his love demands it. God gets angry because he loves us. And and therefore, your anger, my friends, shows you what it is you love. Right? And we are to, of course, love the things that God loves and then before get angry when God gets angry if it is a righteous anger. See, your anger must be appropriate. So if you're to have a righteous anger, consider third, that we must have appropriate anger. There, there are times where it's a sin not to be angry, as we've seen. There's a times when it's a sin to be angry. We need appropriate causes. And I think this is perhaps one of the major issues where you and I fall short. Getting angry over appropriate causes. So let me ask you, what, what gets you angry? What, what do you get all upset about? Is it an unkind word at home or genocide in Nigeria? Right? You get angry over a broken appliance or injustice or gang violence in the neighboring city. One pastor says, We're, we are not ang- it's not ISIS or abortion or human trafficking that gets us angry. It's traffic jams. It's when the zipper gets stuck on my new North Face jacket. Or when Chipotle doesn't put enough chicken in my burrito bowl. Or maybe when we feel underappreciated. That's true, right? That's what gets us angry. Now, why why do we get angry over those things? You know, because we love those things. What we love is our ease, our respect our reputation. We love chicken in our burrito bowls, right? When we pay for that. We, in other words, we love ourselves. We are blinded by self-love. We suffer from what St. Augustine called disordered loves. Our loves are disordered. We love the wrong things and therefore our anger is disordered. We love not being cut off. Even when the person who cuts us off happens to be created in the image of God, the very likeness of God, we we love the fact that we don't have to tap on our brakes and go slow down from 74 to 69 as opposed to loving the person whom God has sent His Son to die for in the car in front of us. Right? We love ourself. We are like so often the older brother who self-righteously is filled with anger because he is not getting his recognition. We are like Jonah who gets angry when the plant who's shading him dies, when he doesn't get angry, has no concern for the eternal state of 120,000 people. My friends, we are often angry when we shouldn't be, and we are not angry when we should The Bible in Proverbs 24, verse 29, says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. You notice someone's angry at someone here. And the instinct, of course, is, I want to get back. You want to get back because you love yourself. You you love respect and power and convenience and comfort and ease and pleasure and safety. You want to get back. And Proverbs says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't say, I will do to him as he has done to me. Don't get back. Don't get angry out of your love for yourself. Right? In fact, we are, if I could put it this way, excuse me if this offends you, we are so stupid at times that we get angry over inanimate objects. Right? As if they are willfully trying to ruin our day. Right? You kick, you, you trip over a rock, what do you do? You turn around and kick it. Right? You're going to get back at the rock. You hit your head on the cabinet, what do you do? You slam it shut. Right? We get, we're, we're, we're upset, right? The, the car won't start, and you, you, you yell or sulk in self-pity. This Friday, I was, I'm going to confess a little sin, if that's okay. Uh, this, this Friday, I was installing a porch swing in our porch, and I was, I was trying to install a 4x4 joist in the ceiling of our porch in order to 
to bear the weight of uh, uh, the carnation on the porch swing, right? And, and I was putting everything back together, and the vinyl in the ceiling of the porch, of the, of the porch was not returning to the proper location. As, and I could hear it taunting me, right, in a very small whisper. And I, I lost my cool. I did. God help me. We get angry at, at inanimate objects. Right? Now, by the way, who controls the inanimate objects? Who's sovereign over vinyl sheeting in a porch? I was, my theology leads me to believe that God is. He's the one, by the way, in case you forgot, who sent his son to die on the cross for us. And yet we get angry over the most ridiculous things as if God needs to make sure every area of my life flows exactly like I want it, like I'm God. Jonathan Edwards, when he was but a teenager, when he wrote down his many resolutions, wisely put, quote, never to suffer the least notion of anger towards irrational beings. He explained he should not because they have committed no wickedness and to respond in anger towards them is simply to be angry at God who rules over them. This is why I believe James, which many people consider the New Testament book of Proverbs, has said the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not because the anger of man is concerned with what man is concerned about. It's concerned with self-love, not God's righteousness. It does not produce righteousness. It is not God-honoring. My question for you is what makes you angry then? You find out what makes you angry. You find out what you love. Is it God and His righteousness and His glory and the health and the well-being of image bearers around us or is it your convenience? Be angry and do not sin. Have appropriate anger. But if we are to have righteous anger, we need to have more than appropriate causes. We also need to be slow to anger. Consider forth this morning that our anger is to be slow we have been told in our culture that we need to express our anger, haven't we? we have, some people say it's a sin to keep the anger in, right? If you, if you keep the anger in, it just builds and builds and the pressure just grows and grows and finally you explode. You need to vent that anger every once in a while. You need to get it out of you. This is called in modern psychology expression therapy, right? Here's the pillow, pound away, release your anger. And many have suggested, many in the mental health industry suggest that venting, venting anger is the only helpful way to deal with it. But not everyone agrees. Some have suggested that actually venting anger teaches you to become more angry. In fact, in working on this sermon, I came across a letter written to a newspaper counselor. You know those, those newspaper counselors that you write in and say, you know, I'm having trouble with my marriage, please help me type of thing. And, and this woman uh, wrote uh, this newspaper counselor and is having trouble with her three-year-old son who was, who was having these outbursts of anger. And the counselor told the mom, it's okay, he needs to get it out of his system. Let him kick the furniture and so forth. Well, someone actually read that advice and wrote back to the newspaper. I thought it, found it interesting. He, he said, I was shocked to your advice to the mother whose three-year-old had temper tantrums. You suggested that the child be taught to kick the furniture and, quote, get the anger out of his system, end quote. My younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. Well, he's 32 years old now, and he's still kicking the furniture. What's left of it, that, that is. He's also kicking his wife, the cat, the kids, and anything else that gets in his way. Last October, he threw the TV out the window when his favorite football team failed to score and lost the game. Right, so someone says, wait a second, venting your anger, that's not helpful. That just teaches you to get angry. You need to, you need to dampen down your anger. You need to silence your anger. And then other people come and say, no, that's repressive. That just builds up tension. So what's the solution? Do we vent our anger or do we repress our anger? Or is there another way? Well, I suggest you the Bible teaches there is a, a third way, a biblical way, and it is called slow anger. So it is not blowing up. It is not shutting down. As Tim Keller says, it's not no anger and not blow anger, but slow anger. In the Bible, repeatedly, if the book of Proverbs teaches us anything about 
anger, it is this, that we must be slow to anger. The wise restrain their anger. The wise allow their anger to emerge slowly and controlled. Consider, for instance, Proverbs 14 and verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 15 and verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Chapter 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. See, over and over again, slow anger, slow anger, slow anger. See, anger at times must be expressed, but the wise do it slowly, just like God. And in working on this message, I, I, I came across dozens, if not scores of passages where God is described. And He's almost always described as one who is slow to anger. So you remember, for instance, when Moses is on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, and he's, he's talking to God and, and is really kind of arguing with God not to destroy the Israelites because of their sin. And, and God says, okay, I, I won't destroy them. And, and it seems almost like Moses is, is somewhat surprised that, that, that you know, God's in a giving mood today. And, and so he says, well, while, while we're talking and while I'm up here, will you show me your glory? And he just totally changes the subject. And God seems to be somewhat pleased with that. He says, okay, I'll show you my glory, but if you see me, you, you'll be obliterated. No, no man could see me and live. And so he hides him in a rock and, you know, he covers him up and he says, you'll see the kind of the trailing afterglow of my glory. But what's more important is not the glow of God. It's the way in which God describes him, right? So God says, I'm going to pass by you. And while I do, I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'm going to describe to you my glory. Isn't that fascinating? So, so if you were to ask God, what are you like? Right? What would he, I mean, he could choose a thousand things. What's on the top of God's list to describe Himself? He says, I am the Lord your God. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Amen. Amen. That's the only way I'm alive today. The only way I'm saved today is because my God is slow to anger. See, God doesn't have no anger. God doesn't have blow anger. God is slow to anger. I have read in a couple places um, that this literally, this phrase slow to anger literally means long of nose. And, and, and from what I understand, I'm no expert on this, but, but in the Hebrew mindset, the anger begins in the gut. And the gut begins to boil. Right? And then it moves up into the neck and the veins start to protrude. And finally the face turns red and, the, and eventually the nostrils flare in anger. And God says, I have a big nose. Right? right? It, it takes, anger's there, it takes a long time for that anger to emerge. And when it does, it's controlled. It's not explosive. Right? I'm slow to anger. We, if we're to have righteous anger, we must have appropriate anger. We must have, be slow to anger. And just like God, when that anger emerges... It must be somewhat, somewhat of a sad anger. Or we might call it a grieved anger. Consider fifth this morning that our anger is to be mixed with grief. Grieved anger. Right? This is what righteous anger... Righteous anger is not merely infuriated by evil. It's saddened by those who commit it. It actually loves those who commit it. Right? Righteous anger loves those who make them angry. This is not what our Lord taught in Luke chapter 6 when He says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. You, you see, He's not saying don't have anger. He's, he's trying to control it. He's saying your anger needs to be mixed with love and grief over those who cause your anger. Right? When Jesus says bless those who curse you, He's not saying, hey, be sure to say nice things about people or say nasty things about you, but on the inside, we really know you hate them. Right? No, he's saying your heart should be changed. You should be love, you should love them. You should, you should be grieved over what they are doing. As Butch prayed, we should, we should love the sinner while we hate the sin. 
Ephesians 4, verse 26, as we said, it says, do not do, uh, be angry and do not sin. And then it goes on, right? It says, and, and don't let the sun come down on your anger. And you know what? And give what? The devil a foothold in your life. And it almost seems like the devil is in our corner. And, and he's whispering, almost like a boxing manager, right? When we're angry and he's saying, okay, listen, they drop their left, right? This is how you can get them. Right? This is how you could hurt them. Go, don't you, you, you got them. Don't let them get you down. And get in there and fight and, and destroy them. Right, the, the devil likes to, to churn up that anger. And Jesus comes along and says, Oh yeah, be angry. No doubt. But at the same time, pray for them. At the same time, bless them. At the same time, love them. Be angry at what they've done. Be angry at the sinful heart that led them to it. But at the same time, love them. Be sad for them. Just like Jesus. I told you in Mark chapter 3, he wanted to heal that man with a withered hand. And everybody said, no, you can't do it today. You have to wait until tomorrow. And it says in verse 5, he looked at, around at them with anger. That's not the end of the verse. He looked around at them with anger, comma, grieved at the hardness in their hearts. How beautiful is our God. And His anger that's mixed with grief, right? So anger occasionally flips over tables, but also weeps over the hardness of Jerusalem. We are to have grieved anger and slow anger and appropriate anger. And, and lastly, if your anger is to be righteous, it needs to be merciful. Merciful anger. Number six. Consider Proverbs 25 and verse 21 and 22. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals upon his head and the Lord will reward you. See, what, what he's telling us to do is when you're, when you're angry at someone, when you have an enemy, you, the goal is to win them back. The goal is to point out their folly. The, point, the goal is not to destroy them. The goal is to, to save them. To help them, to show them the foolishness. So you be kind when they're mad at you and they'll realize the foolishness of their, their anger towards you. Right? It, it's a merciful anger. It's a, it's a redemptive anger. It's trying to bring them back. It's trying to reconcile them. So let's say one day your teenager comes up to you and says, I hate you, Dad. Right? God forbid. And the teenager says, you've never done anything for me. Right? They say, you're ruining my life. Okay? Well, how do you respond? Well, there seems to be a couple options. One, you can, you can withdraw. You can close yourself off. That's the way you can treat me. That hurts too bad. I'm just going to shut myself off to you. And then you lose the relationship. Or you can fight back, right? And after all, you're an adult. You have like 20 extra years of training in verbal abuse, right? And, and, and so you could probably win this, right? And so you, oh, so, well, that's where you can talk to me? Okay, well, here it comes, right? You, you fight back and you blast them back, right? And so, well, yeah, you know what you, how you've impacted my life? We were great before you came along, right? right? So what, you, you fight back and then what? You, you lose the relationship. Is there another option? Yeah, I think there is. The, the other option is you absorb the wrath and you gently come back at them in love with truth. You tell them their sin. You don't ignore their sin. But you come back at them absorbing the wrath with loving correction because you want to save the child. And you want to save the relationship. Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. In fact, I would suggest you were much like that teenager, a lot more than you realize. Except we're often mad at not our earthly parents, but our heavenly parent. I, I have no reason to believe that if I was alive when Christ walked this earth, I would not be one of the religious leaders shouting, crucify him. I have no reason to believe I would not join in that, that, that league opposing Jesus. I'm not sure you would either. And how does he respond to those who kill him? Is it withdrawal? Is it, if you're going to treat me like that, then fine, you're on your own. I don't need you. Or, or is it fight back? 
You say, that's what you're going to treat me? I'm going to obliterate you? Do you not know I could call 12 legions of angels in a moment and destroy you all? Or, he said, I will absorb your wrath and lovingly and gently tell you the truth because I want to win you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think, my friends, to the degree you see Jesus taking our rage and then other people come and wrong you, what do you do? You have a power, you have an ability to take it. Don't you? Because Christ has taken yours. You see, when you receive the love of Christ, it changes your ego needs. It changes what you love. It, 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 you're no longer are so in love with yourself, but you're loving the God who came and redeemed you. And you're able to love the sinner and hate the sin just as God did. You see, be angry and do not sin. We need to have appropriate anger and, and, and slow anger and grieved anger and, and merciful anger. And I think some of you, and all of us, we need to obey God in this. We don't just need to not, simply nod our heads and say, well, that's good truth, and go out the same way. We need God to help us. We need to obey Him. The Bible says in Colossians 3 and verse 8, you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice. I like what Leroy Imes said in his book, The Lost Art of Discipleship. Shortly after I became a Christian, he writes, I was challenged to make personal applications as part of my weekly Bible study. One of the first books I studied was Paul's letter to the Colossians. As I was studying chapter 3, the Holy Spirit caught my attention with this, quote, But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, end quote. He continues saying, I tried to slide past the verse, but the Spirit kept bringing me back to the words, put off anger. At the time, I had a violent temper, and whenever it flared up, I would haul off and bash my fist in the nearest door. In spite of the fact that I often bloodied my knuckles and on one occasion had completely smashed a beautiful diamond and onyx ring my wife had given me, I couldn't seem to stop. And yet here was God's word, put off anger. He says, it was clear to me that this was not just some good advice given to the people of God at Colossae centuries ago. It was God speaking to me at that moment. So that week I made a covenant with God. He had spoken to me about my sin of anger and I had promised the Lord I was going to work on it. My first step was to memorize the verse and review it daily for a number of weeks. I prayed and asked the Lord to bring this verse to my mind whenever a situation arose where I might be tempted to lose my anger. And I asked my wife to pray for me and remind me of that passage if she saw me failing in my promise to God. So, he concludes, Colossians 3.8 became part of my life. And gradually God removed that sin from me. I, I, what I appreciate about this is that he's convicted by God's Word and he just doesn't move on. How many times has God come and speak to us and said, Come on, I have more for you than this. Is it time we've been dealing with this for decades? Let's move on now. Right? I, I have so much planned for you. Can we just get beyond this sin? And we say, Next time. Yeah, you're right, God. I'll get to it then. May God help us now. May we be convicted that we're done with this and that we are bowing our knee to God in submission and saying, help me. I want to get past this. So how can we? How can we obey God? Let me this morning in conclusion give you three suggestions how you can get a handle on this in your life. First of all, I think you should consider why you are angry. Why are you angry? Ephesians 4.26, as we've seen, says, Be angry and do not sin. Paul is actually quoting Psalm 4.4. And the whole verse in Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. He says, listen, you need to take time to ponder. Why are you all worked up? You need to go be by yourself and think and meditate. Go get on your bed and consider what is it you're trying to accomplish with this anger? What are you trying to defend? 
right? Go and, and think about, don't go into your bed and think about the injustice done to you, by the way, and just chew on that over and over again. I can't believe she said this to me, and on and on. No, you, you go and you think, what is it that I love so much right now that I'm trying to defend it with this anger? What, what do I value so much that it's ma- making me angry? And I would suggest to you, if you do this, as the Bible tells us, Psalms 4.4, if you want that verse, right? Is that more time than not, 98% of the time, you will realize how foolish you are being. You'll be embarrassed because you're realizing what you're defending is your own ego. You're defending your own pride. The proverb writer says in chapter 24 and verse 29, Do not say I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. You notice he's having a conversation there. Who's he talking to? See that? He's talking to himself. He's saying, self, don't say I will do to him what he has done to me. He's talking to himself about his anger. Do you know what makes you angry? I would suggest you what makes you angry is not what happens to you, but what you tell yourself has happened to you. Right? Because often what's happened to us is not a big deal at all. But you tell yourself it is a big deal. And therefore you get angry about it. And the Proverbs caution you against this. Right? And let's say you're, you're late. Right? You have a meeting or you have to get home. And, and, the, and the person in front of you is driving, God forbid, the speed limit. Right? Right? And, and, or the waitress has you know, 10 tables and she's understaffed this day and she's doing the best she can. And, and what happens? You start to boil on the inside, right? And you're starting to get angry. And well, why are you getting angry? Well, because you're going to be late for the meeting. And what? You don't want to look foolish. You show up late, you got egg on your face. Right? You don't want to be a fool. You don't want to get in trouble with mom and dad. You're not getting home in time for curfew. And how do you respond to that? Not by repenting and saying, God, I should have planned my day better. But you get angry at the person who is slowing you down. And you slow up late for the meeting and you say, hey guys, sorry I'm late. Traffic was crazy. Right? You don't say, hey guys, sorry I'm late. You know, I just didn't plan my day well today. And I didn't account for what traffic would be like. And that's on me. I need to do better. Right? You need to, see, consider why you're angry. And, and <laughs> the vast majority of the time you're going to realize it's your own ego. You know, not to get angry of your own ego. Slow down. Think about your anger. Secondly, trust that God is in control. Now, if you've been in church for like two months or so, you've already learned Romans eight twenty eight, haven't you? You know that. At least all, probably all of us can paraphrase it. If you're a follower of Christ, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Everything God is working together for my good. Or First Peter chapter 1. The Bible says, For a little while you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter's saying is, you're going to have to face trials in this life. That's just going to happen, right? There's going to be big trials, there's going to be slow, small trials, there's going to be sickness, there's going to be people driving too slow, whatever it might be. And my friends, in that moment, do not act like a practical atheist who believes in God and yet he has no impact upon your life. You must fight to believe what the Word of God teaches you, that God is sovereignly in control of your entire life. And when you believe that, you have then to uh, fight to whether you will agree with God's ruling of your life or you want to take over. Because that's what you're saying. You're saying, I don't like how you're ruling my life. I want to be in charge. And I would humbly suggest to you that God is far better at running your life than you are. See, we need to trust God. We need to believe God's word that even in the trials, even in the injustices, even in the, the annoyances, even in the, the vinyl siding issues, that he is in control. And that's good enough. Consider thirdly. We not only consider why you're angry, angry, trust that God is in control. I would suggest that you would do well to cherish your forgiveness. We'll consider this in closing. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 and verse 32... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, so Paul says, if you're forgiven by God, 
that should massively impact your ability not to grow angry, not to grow bitter, not to grow resentful, but instead to forgive. Now, my friends, how is it that we are forgiven? Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Please understand that we as Christians believe we are indebted to God because of our sin. And therefore, we believe that we and all people must receive the forgiveness of God. We do not believe that we will accumulate a record of goodness and righteousness by which we present to God on the day of judgment in order to be admitted into His presence and the eternal state. We believe instead that we come as great debtors to Him and that debt must be paid. And the only way that we understand, the only way that the Bible teaches for that debt to be paid is for Christ to receive it. He went to the cross, died there after living a perfect life as our substitute to take the wrath of God upon himself. Three days later, he proved that he had done this by being raised bodily, historically, physically from the dead. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You need to be forgiven. Now, Christians, we understand we, we are forgiven. And the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 32, right there, he says, if you're forgiven, that will impact your ability to not explode in anger, but to forgive others. Now, what's the connection? Why? Why does God forgiving me impact my forgiveness of you? Well, I would like to suggest to you that contrary to what is often presented, is that a true saving faith does not simply believe we are forgiven, it is believing that God's forgiveness is wonderful. It's believing that God's forgiveness is beautiful and powerful. Saving faith looks at the horror of sin. It looks at the terror of judgment. It looks at the holiness of God. It looks at the sacrifice of the Son. And it sees forgiveness, as one has said, a staggering beauty and an unspeakable glory. Or as John Piper put it, faith in God's forgiveness does not mean merely confidence that I'm off the hook. It means confidence that this is the most precious thing in the world. Saving faith cherishes being forgiven by God. See, if you only think that, that my relationship with God means I'm off the hook, that will have no impact upon you in the hundred or thousand different ways that God intends for it to impact you. And it certainly will not have any impact on your anger towards others. But... If you consider the forgiveness of God and all that means and the cost in which he paid in order to provide it for you, in your heart you will find your awe and your love growing for God. That you'll find your heart won by God because of what he's done. You will consider God and all his work to be beautiful, precious, and glorious. And you will therefore not get easily angered. You, 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 you say, well, I don't need to get even. I, I have God. He loves me. He's, he's forgiven me. He's taken care, care of all, all my sin and all my junk. He's not angry at me. Why, why should I be angry at you? You won't hold grudges. You'll be slow to anger. You, you, will, you will start the day saying, God, I, I can't wait to give mercy today. You'll say, I love mercy. I love grace. You'll, you'll even start to say, God, let somebody wrong me today so I could come at him with a fistful of mercy. Right? Because I love mercy, and I'm won by mercy, and I've been bought by mercy, and I, w- I want to be like you, God, and I want to give mercy. Have you fallen in love with the forgiveness of God? Have you fallen in love with the grace of God? Because the more you are captured by His forgiveness, the more not, not only will it become easier for you to forgive, you'll actually delight to do so. See, my friends, this command, just like all of the commands in the Bible, is not a matter of self-control. It's not a matter of girding up your loins and pulling yourself up and saying, I will not get angry. It is a matter of your heart being changed by the gospel. Has He changed you? Do you cherish his forgiveness that you too might be like him, one who forgives abundantly? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you that though you have infinite reasons to be angry with us, you are not. And you are not at the infinite cost to your son. How then 
Father, how then can we be people quick to anger? In light of what we have received from you, I ask that you would even now cause us to love and to meditate and consider even this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow morning what we have received from you that we might be quick, even eager to give it to others, namely mercy and grace. Help us, Father, to be angry and do not sin. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.